Good morning, everybody. Um, if I haven't met you, my name is Rob, and I am the, the lead pastor here. I want to welcome you. Um, it's good to see brothers and sisters in Christ gathering to remember what Christ has done on our behalf. Um, also, happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. So praise God for the men and women who have fought on our behalf so that we may have the freedom, so that we may have the peace that we do have. Let's not overlook that this morning. Let's be grateful for them, to honor them, and um, ultimately let's honor the one who has given us the truest and most significant freedom that we could ask for, Christ Jesus. So speaking of our country, speaking of uh, this nation, um, the 32nd president of the United States was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and he was also the longest serving president. He served four terms from 1933 to 1945. Some of you might be confused by that. There has since been laws enacted, so presidents can't serve that long, but he served four, so he was the longest and likely will um, forever hold that. Um, His wife, Eleanor, she was quite an activist, and so we see today the the first lady tends to have causes that they try to be more um, active in, and they try to pursue a little bit, try to bring some attention to. Eleanor Roosevelt was very much so fulfilling that role. And in her activism, she recognized a thing that I want to bring to our attention this morning about peace. She said this. She said, it isn't enough to talk about peace. One must believe in it. And it isn't enough to believe in it. One must work at it. Eleanor Roosevelt said one must work at peace. Her activism led her to understand that our natural bent is not toward peace. So therefore, we have to work at it. It's like trying to go up a a slide. Finley goes to the park, loves to climb up a slide. Think about a, a water slide, trying to go up that. We have to work against our natural bent. Peace is not what we are naturally inclined toward because we are fallen. So therefore, because we're naturally fallen, because we have to work, we see that peace is attainable through much effort. Peace is attainable through much effort. Now, I'm going to unpack that as we go. But earlier, we looked at verses 30 through 41. And that was last week. And what we saw was that the disciples were arguing about who was the greatest, And so we kind of unpacked why maybe they were having that conversation. Maybe it's because uh, Peter, James, John were up on the Mount Transfiguration, and maybe they're walking, and people are wanting to know what happened. Maybe they said, ah, can't really tell you. Jesus told us not to. You think you're better than me? Like, no, I don't think I'm greater. And then they start maybe getting into a conversation about who's the greatest. So we saw an argument take place about who was the greatest among the disciples. And Jesus, once they got to where they were going, said, what were you guys talking about? What are you arguing about? And they were silent. And then Jesus goes on to describe what true greatness really is. And he defines it by service, by serving even the last of these, the lowest of these. But then he closes today's passage with live at peace with one another. So these verses, the ones that we went over last week, 30 through 41, And this week, 42 through 50, oftentimes they're preached as one unit. 
And the reason is because what we see is early on, we see this argument taking place between the disciples about who's the greatest. And then we see today the last phrase, you just say, have peace among yourselves. Don't argue. Be at peace with one another. So we broke it up, uh, but I want to point out that oftentimes they're brought together because, like the rest of the text, they are all connected. And so what we see is Jesus starting off by addressing that argument and then closing by saying, don't argue. Be at peace with one another. And so the question for us this morning is how do we live at peace with one another? On this Independence Day, as we celebrate freedom, and we celebrate peace, how do we fulfill Jesus' command in verse 50 to live at peace, to be at peace with one another? And I would submit to you that the text points out that to live at peace with one another, we must relentlessly fight sin. To live at peace with one another, we must relentlessly fight sin. Because when we are at peace with one another, we're able to stand stronger against Satan's schemes. We're able to experience the gospel unity that Christ has purchased on our behalf. And then further, we're able to enjoy Christ more fully as we live in harmony with the rest of the body. If you are a Christian this morning, you've been adopted into the body of Christ. If you're not at peace, if you're at dis, if you are disunified with another member of the body, then you're not enjoying the fullness of the body that you were designed to enjoy. And so, as we live at peace with one another, we're able to stand stronger against Satan's schemes, we're able to experience the gospel unity that Christ purchased for us, and we are able to enjoy Christ himself more fully as we live in harmony with the body of Christ. So, as you've already picked up this week, we are still continuing in our series through Mark, and we've As we've gone through, we've seen this consistent theme of God restoring his wayward people. And so Mark, if you have your Bibles, is in the New Testament. It's the second book of the New Testament. You see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So go over to Mark. We are in chapter 9, and there are three things this morning that I want us to see. Three ways that we can fight sin. The overall theme is to live at peace with one another. Then we must fight, we must relentlessly fight sin. So in order to live at peace, we must relentlessly fight sin. So there are three ways here that I want us to see that we can, in fact, fight sin. First one is that we fight against causing others to sin. We fight against our own sin. And we fight alongside one another. Fight against causing others to sin. Fight our own sin. And fight alongside one another. So let's pray and ask for the Holy Spirit to lead our time. And then we'll jump into that first point. Father, thank you for the privilege for us to gather, to remember what you have done, to remember the price your son paid for our freedom. God, we pray that as we look at your word, as we dig into Mark 9 and these verses at the end of the chapter, that we would be encouraged, that the gospel would become more full in our lives, that we'd understand it better, that we would live faithfully. God, we pray that we would see you more clearly this morning. 
We pray for Proclamation Church in Mount Vernon that they too would continue to see gospel fruit and that the gospel would be proclaimed there and that lives would be changed. Pray the same for Covenant Community Church in Newark, Lord. We are grateful for these brothers and sisters who gather like us in space, in time, and proclaim the gospel, and we are grateful for the ordinary means by which you change lives. And as we partake in those ordinary means this morning, we pray that you would do just that, that you would change lives, that you would take Christians, those who know you, and that we would be encouraged in the gospel, and take those who may not know you, who are still seeking, we ask that you would help them to understand the gospel and to embrace it and to receive it with joy and gladness. God, we are grateful for our armed forces, for our veterans, for those who have fought and still serve our country today, Lord, for the sacrifice that they either have made or are willing to make. Thank you for allowing us to live in a nation where we can gather like this and not fear violent oppression. God, we do pray for our country. As much as we have to be grateful for, Lord, there's still much that we are hoping and praying for. We pray that our leaders would lead us faithfully. We pray for their salvation. God, if they do not know you, we pray that you would help them to understand the gospel and to receive it. We pray that our nation would value the life of the unborn more so than what they do today. We pray that we would not be implicit in some of the sins of our nation. And God, we pray for other countries, other countries who may not have the freedoms that we have or we live in a wonderful nation. We are grateful for it. And we also recognize that there are sins that we need to be fighting against. But Lord, we, are, we pray for oppressed countries who do not have the freedoms that we have. And so God, this morning, help us to remember that there is a coming kingdom. And God, we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on it. Use your word this morning to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, three ways in which we fight against sin. Because to live at peace with one another, we must relentlessly fight sin. So the first way is that we fight against causing others to sin. We see it right at the beginning. Verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. How weighty it is for us to cause a follower of Jesus. Jesus points out any of these little ones who believe in me. He was just talking about children. He brought a child up to him. He made a point. And he is now saying these little ones who believe in me, anyone who causes one of them to sin, it would be better for them to have a great millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea. Certain death. James Edwards, um, who wrote a commentary on Mark, says that whatever is done to a follower of Jesus, whether for good, as we see in verse 41, or bad, as we see in verse 42, is done to Jesus himself. <clears throat> so what we see is Jesus making the point that anybody who is a follower of mine, 
whatever people do to that person is done to me. Whether it's giving them a cup of cold water in Jesus' name or whether it is causing them to sin. And Jesus takes it very seriously if someone tries to cause one of his people to fall into sin. The reason for that, the reason that God is so against that, is because as followers of Jesus, we are adopted into the Son. That's the beauty of the gospel, that we get to be adopted into the one who has lived the, per- the perfect life, who is perfectly righteous. And so therefore, any time God the Father looks on us, he sees us in the Son. And so if anybody tries to cause Jesus, the Son, to sin, then the Father is not going to be pleased with that. And if anybody tries to cause a follower of Jesus who is in Jesus to sin, then Jesus says that it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were tossed into the sea. So a millstone. What is, what, before I even get there, okay. First off, when I was younger, I, uh, I have family that lives in California, right? And some of you here are from California. And so you recognize that in California, there's this wicked little insect called a black widow. And I've seen them. And when I was out there, my uncle thought it'd be a good idea. He said, hey, let's, let's go out. Let's go black widow hunting. I said, that sounds horrible. But if I can kill a black widow, then great. The world will be a better place. And so we go out. And we've got this little spray. Because <coughs> California sells spray to kill black widows. So we got a little black widow on it specifically for them. And we're going into sheds, going into their barn, because... If they're out there and they've got to grab a tool or they've got to grab hay, they don't want a black widow landing on them because black widows are very poisonous, very venomous. And so we're going around. We're doing our thing. And so I hate spiders. And so I think to myself, this is the worst spider that could possibly be in the world, I don't know, or the, the nation. And so, But afterward, I start doing a little bit of research. What's the most dangerous spider in North America. And it's not the black widow. It's the brown recluse. And to make it even better, the brown recluse is a common house spider in Ohio. <laughs> so I have a social contract with spiders that if they're outside, okay. That's okay. Natural habitat. If they're inside, dead. <laughs> There's no if ands, or buts about it. Reason being is because when, before we had kids, I would sometimes find a spider inside, and I'd be like, oh, I'm going to show up mercy. Get him in a little mason jar and throw him outside. I think I'm a nice guy. After having kids and realizing that this most dangerous spider in North America is a common house spider, I don't want my kids crawling on the floor where there might be a brown recluse. And so as soon as I see a spider, no question, all right, where's the thing? We're either smashing it or we've got a little shocker. Like, it's kind of wicked thing to do to bugs, but we have one. <laughs> and so what we do is immediately find this thing and end it. Now, that's because I have loved my kids so much, right? If a brown recluse were to bite me or were to bite Danielle, then it wouldn't be good, okay? But more than likely, we'd be okay. It's going to be more serious for a little tiny body of a three-year-old or a 10-month-old to be bitten by one of these things. And so therefore, anything that could bring harm to my kids I am going to try to snuff out. Now, God the Father, in the same way, but even more so, hates anything that could harm his children, whether it's sin or those who lead his children into sin. And so now this idea of a millstone, coming back to that, 
it's not just like a, a medallion of a stone, okay, being hung around someone's neck as if they just won the Olympics. This thing is a massive stone used for grinding grain. Job 41 talks about the hardness of this massive sea beast, Leviathan, the hardness of its chest, and it says it's like a millstone. It's that hard. Revelation 18 talks about an angel throwing a boulder, and it says it's a boulder like a millstone. So these are big, hard rocks. So to have one tied around your neck, you can get the idea that Jesus is using some big illustrations here to make a point that it would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around his neck and be thrown into the sea. He would have a better chance to be thrown into the sea with a great millstone around his neck than to face God the Father, knowing that he tried to steer Christians away from following him. So Jesus responds this way because of the first point that we made of the seriousness of (coughs) sin. God hates what harms his children, whether that's sin or those who lead them into sin. But also recognize this. Don't miss this. In the text, for God to say it would be better for them, for this to happen, notice the love that he has for his children, that he would go and defend them that quickly against anyone trying to harm them spiritually. If you are in Christ, then the Father is that quick to want to defend you as well against those who are trying to harm you spiritually. So then, we must fight against sin. So if you are a Christian, we encourage you to consider the way that your own actions may impact other Christians. Sometimes you can have freedoms or sometimes you can do particular things that you may not realize are causing another to stumble. And so how can we consider our actions when we are with one another? Do our actions cause others to fall into sin or be tempted to do so? Also, brothers and sisters, like Christ, are we quick to defend one another? Jesus was quick to say it's better for them to have a great millstone tied around their neck. He wants to defend his his brothers and his sisters. God the Father wants to defend his children. And so therefore, are we quick to defend one another? Children, there are some kiddos in here. And maybe you're a kiddo who is three, maybe you're a kiddo who is 23. But the question is, is your conduct encouraging your siblings, should you have siblings, to honor your mother and father? Are we, as brothers and sisters, spiritually (laughs) and physically, encouraging one another to walk faithfully? And maybe this morning you are in a position where you are hurting, where you're going through some sort of valley or some sort of trial, which later we're going we're gonna to talk about. The text covers that. But I encourage you, does your response cause others who are looking at your situation to praise God or to question God? I've seen some wonderful brothers and sisters go through suffering, even in the life of our small church. And I praise God for the way that they have gone through it. So to live at peace with one another, we must fight against causing others to sin. That is the first way that we fight sin. The second is we fight against our own sin. So look with me in verse 43. We're going to look at verse 43 through 48. 
And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So I've had several conversations just throughout my Christian life with brothers and sisters who wrestle with this passage, genuinely asking, is Jesus being literal here? Do I, do I, like, is this something that Christians should be doing? Because it's easy in our context, in our Western culture, there's a lot of comfort. It's easy for us to say, oh, well, Jesus didn't mean that. That was a, a cultural thing. This is, this is how we should interpret it. And there are instances of that throughout Scripture. And so now we have to come to this passage, this difficult passage, and ask, is this one of those instances, or should we literally consider cutting off our hands, gouging out our eye, or cutting off our feet? Now, I don't think I'm taking a soft position here based off commentaries and based off of brothers and sisters that I've wrestled with with this passage, but I do not encourage you to cut off your hand or your feet or gouge out an eye. I don't think that is what Jesus is getting at for a few reasons. One, throughout the Gospels, we see Peter, who is leading the disciples. He's the, essentially the first among the disciples. And his tongue has gotten him in trouble so many times. We've seen that throughout the gospel. And if you continue to read Matthew and Luke and John, you will see Peter can get himself in trouble. Now, we don't see any instance of Jesus saying, all right, Peter, enough is enough. Stick your tongue out. Somebody get me a sharp rock. We're going to take care of this. We don't see that. Okay? I know that's, I know that's funny, but at, at the same time, I'm serious. But we also, we don't see it literally enacted in any other part of Scripture, whether it's with Peter or anybody else. And then the third reason um, is that there, there's next to no evidence for this being done literally in the early church. We just don't see hands, feet, or eyes being, being cut off. However, I don't want to take a, such a soft position that we just disregard these verses. I don't think that would be healthy either. And so James Brooks, who also wrote a commentary on this book, says this about these. He says, these verses contain metaphors that must not be taken literally, but neither must they be ignored. Jesus used the most startling metaphors possible to show that the possession of spiritual life is worth the most costly sacrifice. Here's his point. He says, whatever endangers spiritual life must be totally removed, even as a surgeon amputates a limb that endangers the life of the rest of the body. If there is something that is harming your spiritual life, then it is so imperative and so important to fight against that and to amputate it out of your life for the sake of your soul. So hand, foot, and eye, I don't think it's saying literally cut off your hand, literally cut off your foot or gouge out your eye, but I think these are serving as metonymies. Okay, so what in the world is a metonymy? So metonymy is a word or phrase that stands in for something related to it. So some, some of you here like to golf. Instead of saying golf course, you might say the links. Um, for instance, another inst um, would be if you are in business, 
You might hear the term suits when you, people are referring to executives. You might hear the term uh, the bottle. He's really hooked on the bottle. You recognize that is an alcoholic drink. Or you might hear the track and think the racetrack. So it's a, it's a phrase that is in, that's standing in for something else related to it. So when we see hand, foot, and eye, what are these standing in for? So commentators, and I would agree with them, um, say that the hand stands for what we do. The foot stands for where we go, and the eye stands for what we view. So what we do, where we go, and what we're viewing. So we see in the text that it's better to enter life crippled than to enter hell. It's better to take that thing out of your life, whatever that is that is causing you to fall into sin, remove it from your life, than to enjoy it now and then enter into hell. We see in verse 48 the phrase, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. So the term hell that we read in that passage is from the Greek Gehenna. It's Gehenna, not Gehenna. Gehenna is a neighboring city. Don't think that that's the same thing. So Gehenna um, is what is a reference to the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom was on the south and the west side of Jerusalem. And before Israel during pre-Israelite times, the Valley of Hinnom was used for child sacrifice to a false god named Molech. So it was a wicked place where children are being sacrificed to a false god. And then King Josiah desecrated the place to try to stop that practice. So what happened was in that process, the Valley of Hinnom eventually became a place where garbage was dumped and sewage was placed. And so this valley of Hinnom became a nasty, stinky dump of a place that was referred to as a place where people would go for punishment. Now, reason for that is because with a dump like that and not proper sewage, you get a very smelly place that would bring in worms and that oftentimes fires would happen in that area. And so it was considered to be a very nasty place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now that phrase where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched is also, we see a little bit further up in verse 44, the unquenchable fire. Each of these, when talking about hell, refer to an eternal state. And so this, that's not the main point of this passage, but it is um, it is important for us to recognize that when we talk about hell, when we talk about punishment, we're talking about an eternal punishment where the fire is not quenched, where the worm does not die. It's an eternal state. And so when Jesus says that we must remove the things that weigh us down, remove the things that are causing us to fall into sin, he's saying because if you don't now, you will never have an opportunity after, after this life. There's not a purgatory place for you to work off some of those rough edges. You have this one life. What you do with it now will determine your eternity. So Jesus says it is better for you to get rid of that one thing or whatever that thing is for the sake of your eternal soul. Whatever endangers our soul must be removed like a surgeon removes a limb must, that thing must be removed for the sake of our spiritual life. Your soul 
is far more valuable than anything that you can attain here on this earth. Think of Mark 8.36, just a chapter ago. What does it profit? What does it profit somebody to gain the whole world and lose their soul? What does it profit someone to, to gain their hand, their foot, their eye? What does it profit someone to gain riches, to gain sex, or to gain status? What does it profit someone to enjoy a particular thing that the world may have to offer and lose their soul? Fight against your own sin. Do whatever you can to experience the victory that comes through Christ Jesus. Fight. Colossians 3, 5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. We have a call as Christians to recognize the things that are earthly because we're constantly fighting against the flesh. We have the flesh, we have the spirit. And so if we are in Christ, then we are no longer enslaved to the flesh, we're now enslaved to Christ. However, we still wage war against the flesh because we're not yet fully sanctified. And so there will constantly be this battle. Colossians 3, 5 says to, to recognize the things that are in the flesh and to put them to death. So what actions do we, as a, as a church, as individuals, what actions do we need to stop doing? What sins in our life do we need to put at the altar, say, God, I'm, I'm giving this to you, I'm confessing it, I need to repent? What actions do we need to stop doing? What places do we need to stop visiting? And then what things do we need to stop viewing for um, just men in this room, there is a real struggle in our society with the fight against pornography. It's, it's there. And so if that is something that you're wrestling with, would encourage you to talk with a brother about that. Don't feel like you need to walk alone. Confess your sin to one another. That's low-hanging fruit when it comes to what we're viewing. But maybe it's a movie or a TV show. Maybe, maybe it's something that makes you just feel softer toward sin, the very thing that put Christ on the cross. And I'm not trying to find, sound fundamentalist or legalist here, but I am trying to encourage you to take those things seriously because your soul is at stake. Maybe when it comes to viewing, you need to stop viewing what others have. There might be a real temptation towards coveting, seeing what they have, wishing that you had that, and not recognizing what the Lord has, has in fact given you. Maybe you have to stop viewing what you have. Maybe there's a real love for the things that God has given you and it's led to some materialism. What do we need to stop doing? What, do we need, what places do we need to stop visiting? And what are some things we need to stop viewing? Ultimately, wherever you fall, whether it's something that I mentioned or whether it's something that I did not mention but the Holy Spirit might be bringing to mind, at the end of the day, we are all going to wrestle with sin. We're, we're lying to ourselves if we think otherwise. First John talks about this. However, if you're a follower of Jesus, then we recognize we wrestle with sin, but we have a lifestyle of repentance where we're continuing to bring these things to the Lord and say, God, I don't want to embrace my sin. In fact, I want to, I want to fight it. My disposition towards sin is no longer enjoyment and pursuit, but it is fighting and trying to put it to death. Jonathan Edwards um, talks about how God's wrath and his judgment are his strange work. And his mercy is his natural 
work. And so if you find yourself wrestling with these things, know that if you confess your sin, God is faithful and just to forgive you. He is eager to forgive you. Don't feel like you have to wallow in your sin for a certain amount of time. Don't feel like you have to do some kind of retribution to to then be able to come to God. That's all been paid for on the cross so that you can come freely at any time. Confess your sin and God is eager to show mercy. Wrath and judgment are just as much a part of who God is as his mercy. However, if we can put it this way, as Jonathan Edwards did, it's more natural for God to pour out mercy than to have to pour out wrath and judgment. So he enjoys it more, if we can say that. So if you are a Christian, remember that. Fight against your own sin, but also be encouraged that you can come to God at any time, confess that sin, and he is joyful that you have come to him. He's not saying, okay, well, I'll forgive it this time, but get yourself together. I don't want to have this conversation in another few days. Don't, don't think that that's who our Father is. Our Father is eager and rejoices when we come to him. If you are a non-Christian, I encourage you to repent and believe the gospel this morning. You may be here, you may be seeking. Praise God that you're here. If you find yourself and you're not a believer and you're here, we are so grateful for that. would encourage you to consider turning from your sin and embracing the good news. So we fight against causing others to sin. We fight against our own sin. And third, we fight alongside one another. Look at verse 49 and 50 with me. For everyone will be salted with fire. (coughs) Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So I was looking at this passage, and I, I'll be honest, I was really wrestling with verses 49 and 50. How do I interpret this? And there are several different, what, what appear to be good interpretations. I will submit one of them to you and would encourage you to look deeper should you feel the need. And so this passage we see in verses 48 and 49, the term salt used several times. So there's a point being made here, and it reminds us of Matthew 5.13, the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So then, when it comes to this passage, Matthew 5.13, and then now the passage that we're in, 9.49-50, how does God preserve us with salt. So it's not good for us to lose our saltiness, but we know that he who started the good work is faithful to complete it. So how does he keep us salty, so to speak? Not in the angry sense, but how does he keep us as his people salty? And what I would submit to you in this passage is that he does it with fire. Look at verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. And so there's a real correlation between following Jesus and going through fiery trials, things that sanctify us, things that bring us to God in ways that otherwise wouldn't have happened. James Brooks, again, in verse 49, says that both salt and fire symbolize purification. 
the reference is probably to the purifying effect of persecution. We've talked about persecution several times the last few weeks, so I don't want to beat that horse into the ground. But Jesus is making a point in the passages that we've been in the last few weeks that there will be persecution. And in fact, that persecution is one of the ways that he keeps us salty. One of the ways that he keeps us as the salt of the earth. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So fiery trials, persecution, valleys that we go through are designed to guard us as salt from losing our taste. God uses these things for good to preserve us. They're also designed to strengthen our faith. And they're also designed to show us more clearly who God is. There are things that you would not understand about God if he did not take you through a trial. I cannot understand God's comfort in the midst of trial if he never puts me through a trial. There are aspects about who God is that I cannot fully understand. I cannot even begin to glimpse until he takes me through a trial and allows me to see him from a different angle. Trials are designed to sanctify us. So as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we fight sin, as we try to live at peace with one another, I would encourage you to, as you see brothers and sisters who are going through trials, lock arms with them. Go up. Let them know you're praying for them and actually pray for them. Encourage them. Let them know that the way they've been walking through, whatever that is, has made an impact on you. Walk through trials together. Lock arms with one another. And those who are in the midst of trials know that God will never leave you. And one of the ways that he makes that clear is by sending brothers and sisters alongside you to hold you up when you can't stand. It's one of the beautiful things about a church community is that we can encourage one another to walk faithfully when that feels impossible. Walk together. Wage war against sin together. We are constantly in spiritual warfare. We fool ourselves if we think otherwise. And as we are in warfare, we have comrades right next to each other. And when we feel tired, don't feel like you're a failure of a Christian to ask another Christian to help hold you up. That's what God has designed the body to do. And so why on this Independence Day, on this 4th of July, why do we value freedom so much? We see fireworks celebrations. We saw Westerville's last night. We plan on seeing more tonight. We see all kinds of people come out. We see sparklers. People are happy. We see apple pie. We see all these wonderful things about 4th of July. Why do we celebrate it so much? We celebrate it because we know independence is what we were designed for. Freedom is what we were designed for. Four. Freedom is worth celebrating. Peace is what we were made for. However, sin has destroyed that. And so now the ultimate peace, the ultimate freedom that we were meant to have is no longer possible because we've been enslaved to our sin. We were meant to have peace with God. We were meant to have peace with one another. But our sin has ruined that. However, 
there is one who has come, who has fought sin on our behalf, who has purchased freedom for us, who has purchased peace for us. We as a culture celebrate the 4th of July because it symbolizes freedom and it symbolizes peace. We know in our deepest heart of hearts that these are things we were made for and things that we desire. However, 4th of July comes and goes every year, and there's a little bit that we recognize where it's not totally satisfactory. And it's because we were designed for a greater peace. We were designed for a greater freedom. Hebrews 12, 14 says to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. There is a holiness that is required for us to see the Lord, and we can never do it on our own. We could never acquire that level of holiness. God is perfectly holy. There can't be a single sin in his presence. We have more than just a single sin. And so therefore, we need a perfect holiness. Christ has fought sin. He has overcome every temptation on our behalf. So if you are in Christ then you have the holiness required to see God. And to be at peace with one another, we must continuously fight against the sin that separates us from God. We must fight not to cause others to sin. We must fight the own, our own sin in our lives. We must fight alongside one another because it can be weary. So let's consider others. Let's consider ourselves. Let's consider one another as the body of Christ. C.S. Lewis says that God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for peace. We're looking for freedom. Apart from God, it doesn't exist. We need God to provide that. To be at peace with one another, we must relentlessly fight sin. But we'll never win the fight against sin apart from the one who has won that fight on our behalf. We cannot walk alone. We cannot win that fight on our own strength. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. He said, those who repent and believe the gospel unexpectedly find Christ with open arms to embrace them, ready forever to forget all their sins as though they had never been. If you want peace this morning, if you want true freedom this morning, we must fight sin, and we must depend wholly and entirely on the one who has fought the fight on our behalf and has accomplished it. It is finished in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise this morning. We thank you for creating this plan of salvation so that we may inherit true peace and true freedom. God, help us to fight sin. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Protect us when sin seems more appealing than faithfulness to you. We recognize that Satan is clever. We need your protection. Help us to be a community that locks arms with one another, that encourages one another, that fights against sin together, all for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.